And here we go. Um, it was truly a masterpiece. I don't know about all that. Ugh, absolutely the worst movie ever. Hands down, bar none, the greatest action spectacular ever. Well, uh, the other one just stuck them up. Are you asking me? I promise I'm not going to sing this time around. Welcome to Don't Be Crazy Podcast. I'm Justin Cavender, and with me as always is Mr. Zachary Rancourt. Here we discuss and dissect what makes a film past or present absolutely amazing or just pure rubbish. All that we ask of each other, don't be crazy. Don't be crazy, Zach. Give me just one night, una noche. I bet you don't even know what song that is. Una noche. Uh, yeah, I do. 98 degrees, duh. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> They were the discount Backstreet Boys. The clock of the bank says 110 degrees. <laughs> ah, that's true. That's 90 degrees is normal. Oh. <laughs> One of my favorite sound bites of all time from The Soup is when Nick Lachey had his own show. And there's this girl that goes, stay out of it, Nick Lachey. <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> I used to, yeah, I used to be a big Jessica Simpson fan. Don't really? ask me why. No. Don't look around me. Don't ask me why. I don't judge. I am not an adjudicator. <laughs> a judge, Judy, and executioner. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> oh, so, have you been? Yeah. What have you been watching? Uh, ooh, lots of stuff. It's still the final few days of October. By the time this podcast comes out, it'll be November. But um, I watched Scream 2 and 3. Um, I need to watch 4. But yeah, uh, just kind of like Steve said, three wasn't as good. It's uh, I liked it, but it, it wasn't as good. And then I watched watched hashtag alive that zombie film on Netflix. Really fun, really good movie. Was yours dubbed? So I was really pissed because it started out dubbed because it defaults to that. But you can go to the audio settings and then you can change it to Korean original. And then they also have I mean they have a ton of options for it, but they have like Korean um, BBQ. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. There you go. <laughs> no, it's like it's a thing. It's a, <laughs> no, it says like Korean uh, guided. So like when someone coughs, they say like cough in Korean, which I don't know how to say cough. But um, so I, I just did the Korean original, and I I prefer to read the subtitles for those films. I I don't like the um, translation. That makes the worst. It's so bad. So, um, but yeah, I really liked that movie a lot. I thought it was fun. And then uh, I watched the Dawn of the Dead from like 2000 or something, 2001. Uh, chicken sandwich yeah. one? Yep. I was going to send you a picture of, a, of, of the neck thing and ask if you wanted a chicken sandwich. But <laughs> <laughs> Can't do it, man. Yeah. Uh, and then the, I watched... The Zack Snyder movie, right? Yes. Yeah, that's right. Mr. Snyder himself. There was no slow motion in this one, though. 2004. Uh, 2004. There you go. The year of our Lord, 2004. <laughs> but um, I they didn't watch uh, the the Mick G movie, The Babysitter Killer Queen. It is the sequel to his hit from like 2018 that was straight to Netflix, The Babysitter, which I enjoyed. Uh, I did not. This one I liked, but the dialogue was was bad. It was real bad. Um, but I, I did like Samara Weaving a lot, and I, I enjoyed it. Uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the one from 2002, three, the one with Jessica Biel. Sure. I watched that one again. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, I really like that one a lot. So that one holds up. And then I watched a lot of South Park. 
just because South Park's amazing. Yeah, I really like the trailer from that Texas Chainsaw Massacre with the Polaroid. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> yeah, it's all loud and yeah. gross. They show like jars of teeth and shit, and yeah, it's um, I enjoy that movie. I think it's it, it's very good. I, you know, that was actually the very first movie that. Hope the feds aren't listening, but when I was young and the internet was in its infancy, I downloaded a movie illegally and it was Texas Chainsaw Massacre and it was like someone filming it with their handheld camera in a theater and Comcast sent me a letter and it was like cease and desist or you're going to owe us $150,000 and I was like the 16 year old kid like oh shit I don't even have $150 so it was uh, was scary to say the least sounds scary but yeah that's all I watched What what did you watch Justin uh, not a whole lot. I've been playing a lot of video games lately. I watched X-Men and X2 and the Sword in the Stone. To and fro, stop and go. <laughs> Good shot. I, li- I like the Sword in the Stone. I do too. I know the whole movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Like, um, when there's squirrels and and Merlin's like, Madam! I say that too. <laughs> I say that to Alex sometimes. When she's, when she's all up in my business. It's pretty funny. <laughs> I've also been playing video games too, but I've only been playing Call of Duty because they have a uh, the haunting in Verdansk, and mm-hmm. uh, they have all these little fun side mission things to get you know some loot. And I got all sixteen Halloween loot crates, and I got this cool gun. It's called like the pumpkin pitcher or something. I don't know. It's wow. pretty sweet though. Man. Sounds intense. Yeah, it is. Wow. Well, cool man. Are you ready to talk about our motion picture show of the week? I think so. All right. We are going to be doing the Royal Tannenbaums from 2001, directed by Wes Anderson, who you might know from Rushmore or The Life Aquatic with Steve Zusu or The Darjeeling Limited and even The Grand Budapest Hotel. All, all really good films. Not going to lie. It was written by Wes Anderson and his college buddy, Owen Wilson. And um, these two put a Cracker Jack movie together. Love it lots. It's got quite the ensemble cast. You got... Gene Hackman, Angelica Houston, Ben Stiller, Gwyneth Paltrow, Luke Wilson, Owen Wilson, Bill Murray, and Danny Glover. Fantastic cast. Love them all. Are you ready to dive into the critical reception? Yes, I hope so. First, do you have anything to add about any of those cast members or Wes Anderson before we continue? Yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll discuss it more in depth. But I mean, it's Wes Anderson is is kind of a love or hate guy for a lot of people. Um, some people maybe just don't understand his style and uh, they're they're crazy. But um, yeah, I really do like that he works with a lot of the same actors. Uh, he always he usually always has a ensemble cast for pretty much every film he does, minus maybe Bottle Rocket. But he he's very good at getting those those A-listers or former A-listers and they all really shine and they give their they give their 100% when they when they work on Wes Anderson films in my opinion. I thought I thought we played pretty good. Just got to go out there and give it 110%. <laughs> for all, for all you bid what was that movie? Bedazzled fans. Bede- yeah, bedazzled. <laughs> <laughs> I thought we played pretty good. All right, so as far as critical reception goes, this movie is unique because it is sitting at a whopping 80% on the old Rotten Tomato meter there with an audience score of 89%. So that's fantastic. But as I'm looking at these snapshots of reviews, there's only one 
negative review on this entire page. So I'm going to go ahead and read that one first. This is from Mark Stain of The Spectator. And that's the Rizzo. She doesn't like Mark. Yeah, Mark's a bad man. (laughs) (laughs) The audacity giving this movie a negative review. He says, there is so much to like about Wes Anderson's work, and it's hard not to warm to a guy who makes a comedy about about damaged young (laughs) has-beens, but he misfires badly in some crucial respects. And I don't know, man. I, I'm going to have to disagree with Mark on the misfires. I do not believe that there are any. Um, but I am drinking the Wes Anderson Kool-Aid. I am a fan. So it's hard for me to spot the flaws. So uh, it's I would argue that it's hard for me to be objective about this movie because I love it so much. So I tried to explore this review further. I wanted to read the full review. But I was prompted with a notification that told me to pound sand unless I subscribe to this service. And I chose not to do so. Mark's words are not <laughs> worth the amount of the subscription fee for me. He should be paying you. Yeah. <laughs> Something <laughs> about that. There was, I just had a problem with paying to know more about this guy's opinion when I should have already <laughs> moved on with my life at this point. <laughs> but whatever. You know, it's it's fine. It's just the way the movies work, right? So then we have Jeff Strickler from the Minneapolis Star Tribune. He says, The film manages to be both sarcastic and sentimental. As odd as the Tenenbaums are, the family remains bound by love. Takes a while to get there, but I could see that. It's a great way to summarize it. Yeah. Debbie Lynn Elias from Behind the Lens says the Royal Tannenbaums is silly but full of love. It shows that even at their worst, there is always some good in every family. I don't know about all that. But <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> Define good. <laughs> I mean, there's some pretty horrible people out there, so Yeah. But sure, I'll bite. I'll say that that is accurate for the time being. And um because we only had the one negative review, I'm going to go ahead and leave it at that. Um, and I will add that this film had a budget of $21 million opening weekend. I think it was only in five theaters on this day. I think I read that correctly. Uh, it made $276,000 and that was on December 16th of 2001. Uh, eventually it got its worldwide release in, in January, I believe, cause that's when I saw it and it had just come to my theater. I saw what I thought was opening weekend in January and, uh, grossed 52 million here in the United States with a worldwide gross of 71 million dollars. Uh, question When you saw it in theaters, did you were you already established with Wes Anderson's films? I mean, were you familiar with them? So I had seen, uh, I saw Rushmore in the theater and then I had rented Bottle Rocket. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had never heard of Bottle Rocket until I did homework after watching and loving Rushmore. And then I saw, I actually watched Royal Tannenbaums three times in the theater. I loved it so much. And each time I saw it was with somebody else. It was with my my girlfriend, who then went on to become my ex-wife, uh, my friend Felix, a different Felix. I actually know two Felixes. And then I uh, saw it by myself. Nice. One last time, yeah. Wow, I did not know you saw it three times. Suffice it to say, you really hate this movie. Right. Yeah, that was one of the things, because like, <laughs> Um, this actually hit me at a really unique time in my life. And 
I was still trying to figure out what I wanted to be. And this was one of those movies that just kind of sealed the deal for me that I wanted to make motion picture shows. And I changed my major, my senior year in college to film. (laughs) So I had to kind of go back a little bit. Um, But it was, it was this movie along with others, you know, like Pulp Fiction I've, I've talked about, but, and Jaws for that matter. But it was this film in particular that told me, holy smokes, I could do this. And um, it was, it left quite an impression on me. Yeah. Well, not that I could do it, but that I wanted to do it. So, all right. You want to hear some fun trivia? It's I do. Probably the most, the most fun. I say that all the time. So the original Hawk used to play Mordecai, which is a great name, by the way, was kidnapped during, <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> was kidnapped during shooting and held for ransom. Production could not wait for him to be returned. The bird that appears later in the movie has more white feathers because it's a different bird. Oh, that's interesting. So that's, I like that they did that. And then they kind of said, oh, you know, like white streaks in your hair because of what fear or something like that yeah, traumatic, traumatic experiences experience, yeah as opposed to tying up the bird and screaming at it to make you be <laughs> scared and go through a traumatic experience can't be can't be screaming at no hawks man yeah. don't you know <laughs> can't have you going around screaming at hawks ever since the hawk attack of 96 i don't know if you remember that but yeah oh, i remember i blogged gene, about it gene hawkman nah, get it uh, so Gene Hackman mentioned in interviews that he was somewhat hesitant to accept the part as he felt he, that he himself had been insensitive to his own family at different points in his life. He asked them if they would find him playing this character uncomfortable for their own sakes. They all agreed he should accept the part. Oh, damn. My shit gets real. Uh, Danny Glover, Luke Wilson and Owen Wilson all turned down parts in Ocean's Eleven to appear in this film. Oh, that's interesting. I bet Luke and Owen would have played Scott Kahn and Casey Affleck's role. Just going out on a limb there, just because they're bros. Gene Wilder turned down the royal role of Royal Tenenbaum due to his retirement. Oh, that would have been really fun. I really like Gene Wilder. He could have like walked with the cane all slow and then did a somersault, and then everyone would have cheered. That would have been a blast. The, um, the brand of cigarettes Margot smokes throughout the movie were only sold in Ireland, and they were discontinued in the 1970s. According to Wes Anderson in the DVD insert... <laughs> Who owns DVDs anymore? Um, The insert detailed all of the setting and props and the reasons why he used them. This was intentional because of the 1970s theme and to make Margot's secret smoking habit just a little stranger. Interesting. And then finally, Ethelene. Did I say it right? Ethelene. 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 Tannet. Oh, my God. Ethelene Tenenbaum is loosely based on Wes Anderson's own mother, Anne Burroughs, who, after divorcing his father, became an archaeologist. Burroughs' actual glasses are worn by Ethelene. Interesting. Huh. Anne Burroughs. Yeah, they're really big and cool. I dig them. (laughs) Yeah, I thought it was interesting when she's like, when she was, uh, they were excavating the, the bones and stuff, and it just looks like a skeleton you could get at like a party store. (laughs) Right. So, synopsis. Royal Tenenbaum explains to his three adolescent children, Chaz, Margot, and Richie, that he and his wife, Ethelyn, are separate. Ethelyn? Is it Ethelene? God damn it. Ethelene. Okay. Like Sizzleen. Chaz, Chaz, Margot, and Richie, that he and his wife, Ethelene, are separating. Each of the children achieved great success at a young age. Chaz is a math and business genius from from whom Royal steals money. Margot, who was adopted, was awarded a grant for a play that she wrote in the ninth grade. Richie is a tennis prodigy, an artist who expresses his love for Margot through paintings. 
Royal regularly takes Richie on outings with the other children. Uh, and then Eli Cash is Tenenbaum's neighbor and Richie's best friend. 22 years later, Royal is kicked out of the hotel where he has been living. The children are in a post-success slump with Richie traveling the world on a cruise ship following a breakdown. He writes to Eli revealing his romantic love for Margot. Chaz has become overprotected of, of his sons, Ari and Uzi, uh, following his wife Rachel's death in a plane crash. Margot is married to neurologist Raleigh St. Clair, for whom she hides her smoking and her checkered past. Raleigh is conducting research on a subject named Dudley Heinsberg. At the Lean's longtime accountant, Henry Sherman, proposes to her. Learning of Henry's proposal, Royal claims that he has stomach cancer to win back his wife's and children's affection. Ethelene calls her children home, and Royal moves back in and sets up a medical equipment in Richie's sets up medical equipment in Richie's room. Royal learns of Chaz's overprotective nature and takes his grandsons on an adventure involving shoplifting and dogfighting. On their return, Chaz berates him for endangering the boys while Royal accuses Chaz of having a nervous breakdown. Eli, with whom Margot has been having an affair, tells her that Richie loves her. Royal discovers the affair and objects to Margot's treatment of Raleigh, who confides to Richie his suspicions of Margot having an affair. He and Richie hire a private investigator to surveil her. Meanwhile, Henry investigates Royal's cancer claim and discovers his hospital had closed, his doctors do not exist, and that his cancer medication is only candy. Tic Tacs, to be exact. <laughs> he has the freshest breath. He confronts Pagoda, the servant, and gathers the family to tell them that Royal has been lying about his illness. Afterwards, Royal and Pagoda move out. Richie and Raleigh get the private eyes report on Margot, which reveals her history of smoking and sexual promiscuity, including a previous marriage to a Jamaican recording artist. Both men take the news hard, with Richie going into the bathroom, shaving off his hair and beard, and slashing his wrists in an attempt of suicide. Dudley finds him, and Raleigh rushes him to the hospital. As the Tenenbaums sit in the waiting room, Raleigh confronts Margot and then leaves. Richie escapes and meets with Margot to confess his love. They share the secret love and kiss. Royal decides that he wants Etheline to be happy, and finally arranges for a divorce. Before Henry and Etheline's wedding, Eli, high on mescaline, <laughs> crashes his car into the side of the house. Royal rescues Ari and Uzi, and the boy's dog, Buckley, is killed. Enraged, Chaz chases Eli through the house and wrestles him to the ground. Eli and Chaz agree that they both need psychiatric help. Chaz thanks Royal for saving his sons and for buying them a Dalmatian from the responding firemen as a replacement for Buckley. 48 hours later, Ethelene and Henry are married in a judge's chambers. Sometime later, Margot releases a new play inspired by her family and past events. Raleigh publishes a book about Dudley's condition. Eli checks himself into drug rehab in North Dakota. And Richie begins teaching a junior tennis program. Chaz becomes less overprotective of his children. Royal seems to have improved his relationship with all his children and seems to be on better terms with Ethelene. He has a heart attack and dies at the age of 68. Chaz accompanies him in the ambulance on the way to the hospital and is the only witness to his death. The family attends his funeral where the epitaph dubiously reads that he died tragically rescuing his family from the wreckage of a destroyed sinking battleship. I really did like that, though. He died tragically rescuing his family from the wreckage of a destroyed sinking battleship. Right. Fascinating. <laughs> he had seen an epitaph that was similar, which gave him the idea earlier in the film. Mm. When they go to the cemetery to see his mother. A lot of cemeteries in this movie. Well, well, one cemetery, but <laughs> I mean, de death is a pretty prominent theme. Mm -hmm. All right. So that was a lovely synopsis. Thank you, Wikipedia, for that. Uh, when did you first see the Royal Tannenbaums and were you already familiar with Wes Anderson's work? Well, actually, today, about four hours ago, was the first time I saw the Royal Tannenbaums. And yeah, you know, I am a huge fan of Wes Anderson. 
I, I enjoy the majority of his films and his style. So maybe I shouldn't say a huge fan. I really, really like Wes Anderson uh, because I haven't seen Bottle Rocket. So I guess that's, I don't know. There's like some diehard fans I know that are like, Bottle Rocket's his best. But, um, <laughs> that's not true. Uh, I, I, I mean, know, they, can, I they can believe that, but yeah, I mean, it was literally like his first movie. And I mean, the difference between Rushmore and Bottle Rocket is, is pretty profound. Yeah. Well, you know, it's just people who are like, well, the original is the best. And I'm like, I don't know about that. So um, but I, I really enjoy his his films and his style. He just has this kind of precise way of doing things. And everything that he does in his films is just on purpose. And like you and I talked about this during the the her episode about Spike Jones, how you said, like, within the first five minutes, you're like, yeah, this is a Spike Jones movie. If you didn't know the title of it, if you didn't know the director of it, you'd be like, oh, this is a Spike Jones movie. You could easily do that with any Wes Anderson film, like even his animated films. You could be like, oh, this is a Wes Anderson movie. So, yeah, uh, this is my first time seeing it. I did not see it in the theaters, but um, I oh. really enjoyed it, Justin. Well, that's good to know. It was your first outing. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about the opening sequence. It's roughly eight minutes in length and begins with the narrator introducing us to the cast of characters. Uh, This technique actually works really well when dealing with an ensemble cast. Um, There have been other movies like The Godfather where there's a wedding at the beginning that kind of gets everyone together. Um, Here we actually get a peek into each of these characters and who they are at their core. Royal, of course, is a bit of a dick and despite being an elder, has a lot of growing up to do. Uh, He's never reserved in how he speaks to his children, and the amount of resentment towards him grows with each shot. How did this opening resonate with you, and were you 100% on board, or did you not quite know what to make of the film just yet? Yeah, so like I I thought it was a really good example of, of when exposition actually works very well. I like the Godfather reference that you were saying. We needed to know who the characters were and how they're and, and all of their backstories, because I think that was the foundation for the film, basically. Um, so the story of the Royal Tenenbaums in, and this is just my opinion. I think that it's, it's like this family that is fucked up just like a lot of families out there, but you know, it's okay because at the end of the day, we, we can try to make amends. I'm not saying everyone deserves that opportunity or a second chance, but the one of the reviews you read about just family, there's always this love between families. And I really think that's at the core of what Anderson was trying to get at with this movie. Um, it's hard, but there comes a, a point through self-reflection for like for Royal that we sometimes we, we can grant second chances to people. But like, even though he was a piece of shit and it took him a long time to realize this. I, in my opinion, I think he he deserved a second chance. Like he was trying and he was trying his best. Now, it wasn't the best way to go about it because he faked he faked the death. But I just I don't know. I, I, I think that he was really trying and I and I and I dug it. And I think that this was all set up because of that opening narrative to show just kind of how shitty he was and how unique his kids were. And his kids were on a path too where they were all lost. So it's just a lot of broken people and misery loves company. Sure. I mean, I think you could argue that just not even having that nuclear family, as it were, uh, you know, he he did everything he could to complicate their lives. And (laughs) it showed uh, when you fast forward 22 years and, you know, because the opening is basically broken up into two parts. There's them as kids and then reintroducing everyone 22 years later. And we see just how damaged this family truly is. Royal is broke. Richie is in love with his sister and he's been touring the world on a cruise ship 
Eli is now a published author and puts on a show, but he's basically a poser. You know, he's seriously lacking in confidence. Uh, Margo is married, but she keeps to herself and is knee deep in depression, which is just obvious looking at her. Uh, she's comforted only by her secrets and troubled past. Raleigh St. Clair is a neurologist that works with some kid named Dudley that suffers from a rare acute <laughs> disorder. So he was a new character, right? Both of these yeah. two, Raleigh and, and Dudley. Uh, Chaz yeah. is a widower. And he's a nervous wreck that's overprotective of his children, not allowing them to mix it up and, and be kids. And, um, you know, uh, Ethelyn, uh, she's she's now an archaeologist and she's had all sorts of suitors, which we got to got to see. And now Mr. Sherman, played by Danny Glover, offers a marriage proposal. So now we're 15 minutes in the film and we know everything we need to know about these characters to move forward with the story. The stage is set and it's now time to see how this all plays out. The entire setup is a perfect novelization of what we were seeing on screen, you know, because obviously the beginning opens with a book being checked out of the Royal Tannenbaums. And it's basically it's playing out just like a book, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. And as as a first time viewer, were you appreciative of this information or did you perceive it as more of an info dump pandering to the audience? Like Wes Craven films are often perceived as pretentious. And I'm curious if you got that impression in the Royal Tannenbaums or do you say nay? It's delightful. <laughs> um, I, I say it was delightful. And but I, I also really enjoy his films. I think it's it's unfair, though, for people who, who don't understand Wes Anderson and his style to call it pretentious, because I don't think that's what it is. I mean, I've used that term often, but I don't think that his style exudes pretentious or pretension. Um, I don't think he's being holier than thou or high and mighty or or high class by creating some sort of film where it's like, you're not going to understand this. It's, I I don't think that's very fair to say he's, he's providing this condensed version of that book to us through this creative and just poignant way. I mean, I I really enjoy this film a lot and and like, I can see how it could be slow because like I was thinking the entire time watching it. I'm like, okay, I need to make sure I set aside my, my love for Wes Anderson. It'd be just like if I was to see a Paul Thomas Anderson film or to see a David Fincher movie, I'm going into those knowing like I love these directors. So I need to set aside the fact that they may make a dud here and there, or they will make a dud here and there. But I was trying to look at it through a lens of somebody who maybe had never seen a Wes Anderson movie. And I could see how it could be slow for some people. Uh, I mean, obviously there was a time when I started watching Anderson films, but I didn't maybe necessarily get it at first, but I think after subsequent viewings of, of his other movies, I was like, Oh, okay. I really like this. But um, you know, I think those, I think those people that may think it's slow. Uh, I, I think they, as long as they don't have a preconceived notion of who he is, and as long as they don't hear people just badmouth him, just go into it with an open mind, and I think you can like it a lot more. So I don't think it's very fair to say the pretentious thing. Sure. I mean, I don't think he's pretentious, but, I mean, he definitely has his critics. And, you know, when I saw this in 2001, Wes Anderson was was still very new on the scene. You know, we had grown accustomed to this film school model of motion picture shows and yeah. this deviated from that. And it and it didn't resonate well with everybody. And for me, it was just one of those things where I had never really seen anything like it. And it blew me away. And, you know, earlier today, I sent you some screenshots that showcase this incredible, like, affinity of color and tone 
from shot to shot. And the color palette in this film is absolutely gorgeous. And a lot of the time, a lot of time and energy actually went into connecting each and every set piece with the character's attire. And is that something that you noticed during your first watch? Oh, absolutely. His how he uses that composition to just tie shots together and really enhance the scenes is awesome. Um, when he uses uh, mise-en-scene to kind of build around the characters and then like depth of field uh, during various shots so he can kind of show you what's going on in the background while you're also paying attention to the fore and the middle ground. Um, I think it really creates this mood for the characters uh, whether it be morose, whether it be happy, whether it be melancholy, whatever. I think it really helps invoke emotions. Sure. And um, he, he, I think he was heavily inspired by the French New Wave cinema, which some of the characteristics, if, if people don't really know what French New Wave was, it, it happened around the 1950s, um, obviously, in, in, in French filmmakers. They, uh, they patented it. But uh, a lot of like de-emphasized plot and dialogue, uh, a lot of jump cuts instead of continuity editing, which he does a good amount in his films. He uses weird jump cuts, um, especially during his montage scenes or preparation scenes where it's just a close up of like a book going down and then a knife and then a whatever. Um, his use of handheld cameras and his use of long takes is big. He, he really does like the long take. And uh, it's one of my favorite techniques that directors use. But um, I think he was definitely inspired by French New Wave cinema. And I saw a very, very cool, I call it coffee table book. It's uh, just like a book you could put on your coffee table. And if you have friends over, they could flip through it. But it's it's called the Wes Anderson Collection. And it dives into this kind of stuff that you that you sent me, the the affinity from shot to shot. And it's, um, it's very interesting. It uh, breaks down things like from Rushmore, all of his films, essentially. But uh, all the symmetry, all the lines, the, the the purpose behind everything, like I said before, nothing nothing was accidental. Everything was 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 very meticulous and on purpose with Mr. Anderson. So right. I dig it, man. Yeah. So so what actually started that those the string of photos that I sent you was I had just paused it because I had to go to a meeting for work. I was watching it again. I just wanted to have it on the background in case there was anything I missed. And I paused it, and it was Richie in his tent, and he's laying there, and he's in his yellow sort of tan that mustard yellow outfit that he wears it's the same color yeah. as his tent <laughs> and then the back wall of his tent has a blue curtain that has like um rocket sh- a green and red rocket ships mm-hmm. and on the table he has his cars lined up that are all red blue and green and yellow and then there's a green plant and there's a light that's hanging that's all those exact same colors and it literally just looks like you're just staring off in this void of mustard yellow and green and blue. <laughs> yeah. and it's so cool. But like, I just yeah. looked at it and I was like, holy shit, look at that. And then, you know, I just started thinking of all these other shots. And there's like one when Richie's on the Cote d'Ivoire uh, cruise ship. Uh, it's it's literally just the, the, the tan color jacket that he wears, a uh, white towel with the red logo on it. And then his camera, which ha- and, and the Fila uh neck not neck um headband Polo? and oh. and wrist and wristbands and stuff you know oh, it's yeah. the whole outfit it's all the same thing the red white and navy and same with his bed and it all just matches and then i just start just clicking on just random scenes <laughs> just like on the timeline because i'm watching it digitally right and it's mm-hmm. all the exact same stuff even even when uh richie and margo are on the sofa listening to royal say that he's sick um Margot's wearing sort of this red and, and yellow striped shirt that looks just like the um, stained glass windows that are behind her. 
And whereas Richie's wearing his his tan outfit that matches the the sofa and the lamps. And then even another scene that had uh, Ethelin and and Margot talking to each other. They're both wearing blue outfits, whereas um, Ethelin is wearing a solid blue blazer, where and Margot is wearing a, a blue and white striped shirt. It looks just like the blue and white books that are next to her. And it's just totally the exact same thing. And she's actually reading a book called uh, Accounting for Everything. Yeah. And it's a <laughs> yeah. guide to personal finance that's <laughs> written by Henry Sherman. And it's got his whole family on there, which is awesome. And it's so cool. Even even Richie as a kid, he's playing with his ham radio. And he's got this, this uh, white striped shirt on. And looking through the window, there is a, a white striped steeple through the window and it just it's all just connects and goes together it's the same tone it looks like it's just like doom and gloom kind of thing but right. then there's always someone wearing a bright color you know like ben stiller's chaz character is always wearing a red jumpsuit mr sherman's <laughs> yeah. always wearing that bright blue like handicap blue blazer yeah. you know what i mean so yeah. it's so funny how there's just these standout contrasts of color and there was actually another shot where when royal is revealed for for lying about his illness he comes out and and it's a really really ugly shot of of everyone wearing their random colors, and it just doesn't go. <laughs> like right. the kids are in the tracksuit, Margo's in her red striped shirt, but they're sitting on a on a green blanket with a green curtains and a blue wall, and it just it's hard to look at. It just looks like someone vomited all over the canvas, <laughs> and I I feel like that was done intentional in that it's it's an uncomfortable scene, and so just looking at it, you're just like, oh, I can't. My brain can't even process this information right now, which right. is pretty great. So, well, and uh, even even the final scene of the film at the funeral when they're all leaving that little gate area where they just buried Royal, every character is unique in this film, and I think that's that's so interesting for West to do because he's great at writing. Both him and Owen Wilson did a fantastic fantastic job with with the script, but uh, he's really good at developing these characters, and they each have this uniqueness, and you can you can maybe not relate with them, but you can kind of understand what kind of characters they are. And, and I think a really good example of this too was in like knives out when Ryan Johnson made his characters, each one was unique and they had their own individuality. And I really, really enjoyed that at the end that none of them were all, you know, they all weren't wearing black suits or whatever. Even uh, Mr. Sherman's son, he was in his, his naval attire and, and there's not many costume changes. They all pretty much wear the same thing, even though this takes place over seven days, the main story. So it's like, it's funny that they don't change. Like Ben Stiller's always, always wearing his jumpsuit. And <laughs> even when he's a kid, uh, he's yeah. got like that tie rack with all yeah. the exact same tie. I, I was dying when I saw that. I thought that was so funny. And and for my it's money, I think. Spinning. And he's like, the, which one am I going to wear? I know. <laughs> what an asshole. But, so the funniest part for me in the movie, because I laughed quite a bit, but the funniest part for me was when. Uh, yeah, he's telling the kids that he's going to die and Ben Stiller's just flipping through a book. He's like, oh yeah, okay, well, do you have a, like a timeline? And then he says, what happened to your wife? Or if it's like, my wife died. And he holds his hand out to give, like shake his hand and Ben Stiller walks by and like slaps his hand a few <laughs> <Yeah>, times. <laughs> <laughs> I was laughing so hard just because it was such a Ben Stiller thing to do. But yeah, and then he, he just rolls out. So there are a lot of little funny moments in this movie. Yeah, and like Royal even says who's like... um you know, when he when he remembers that his Chaz's wife is is buried at the cemetery too, he's like, "Yeah, oh yeah, we can swing by her grave too." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, take some of the flowers away from his mom's. Yeah. 
He's like, he's like, oh yeah, real good, look, real good looking lady you had, or mom you yeah, had there. She's a very attractive woman. <laughs> very attractive woman. <laughs> it's like, thanks, guy. <laughs> he's, a, he's a dick, dude. He is a dick, big time. Pappy. Oh man. So let's um, what's the story with the public transportation in this film? There's the Gypsy Cab Company and the Green Line Bus, and both are just beat to hell, and they stick out fairly well in this '70s aesthetic. What do you think Wes Anderson was trying to do there? Ooh, um. I don't really know. Uh, maybe it was maybe he was trying to create like this ambiguous time setting because, you know, it had a lot of 70s feel, even though they do. They do say the years like Ben Stiller says his wife died in 2000. And then we do see dates and stuff, but we don't see any representations of 2000. Uh, like there's I don't think there are any computers in the movie. There are there. There's some in, in his office when he has. His, when he moves back home and he has business running from his old bedroom. Oh, well, those are even really old computers, though, too. Well, like, I mean, there were some see? of them are flat screened. They were just thick, flat screened. Mm, OK, so, I mean, maybe he's creating some sort of ambiguity of, of time. Um, it, it also could just be nothing, too. I mean, it could just be because of Wes Anderson's unique director trademark style. Right. I mean, I remember this funny American Express commercial that they used to play before movies in the theater. <laughs> yeah, with this Do you birds. remember that one? <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's like, oh, and my birds. I need those. It, yeah. And he goes, he's like, can you do a 357? And like, he just, for some reason, he just has a 357 in it too. And I, I, I just remember that commercial pretty vividly. But um, yeah. that, that touched on all of Wes Anderson's tropes. And I really enjoyed that. Um, it, it also could possibly represent Royal just like being broke. And living a life that he's not accustomed to, which, which in a sense, it's it's ironic to kind of the type of person he was his whole life, who had money, who he was accustomed to whatever lifestyle he had. But I do think that it's it's great at the end or towards the end when he finally goes to Ethel and he gives her the divorce papers and he makes up with with Henry, and then he decides to catch the bus. Um, he's accepted this public transportation as opposed to that cab has a dent in it. And yeah, this <laughs> cab has a dent in it. Another dent in even, even Another though, dent even though he didn't say that, but yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. No, so I don't know. I'm, that one's tough. What do you, what did you surmise? I don't know. I, I immediately think of like, anytime I was ever in Mexico, every cab I ever got in the check engine lights on. It's just like a theme. So I don't know if it was just something about um, public transportation just tends to just, be uh unkept i guess lived in as it were yeah yeah i can see that yeah i wasn't sure i was curious what your thoughts were um back to royal so we learned that he's dying of stomach cancer and while cancer is one of the worst things in the world did you sympathize i mean i guess you did at the beginning because you, you mentioned it a little bit already that you know you felt that he deserved a second chance but like you know as your first time watching it do you, do you feel like you're in the same camp as Chaz? And and because like Richie has a different relationship with his father uh, because Royal always supported him and loved him growing up. And, you know, I was just curious if if should should Chaz and Margot be quick to forgive and forget or are they justified in feeling indifferent over Royal's fatal illness? No way, man. I'd be so mad. Like the fact that if he if he went in and I, I get that he was trying to get a foot in the, in the door and, and use that. But I mean, he lied to them and it was a horrible lie. He, he made them think that he was going to die. And I don't, I don't think that that's, that can be forgiven. And so, you know, the two wrongs don't make a right. Um, so I would be, I'd be really pissed too. I get what he, what he was trying to do. And so that's what I mean. You know, ultimately I, I think 
he did change his he did change his ways, which was great, but that act was based on a lie originally. So I'd be really pissed. And it would just it would cause me to distrust him even further. I mean, I, I feel like he was kind of being selfish at a certain point. So Yeah. Were you keen on his scheme right away or 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 did you think that he was actually dying? Um, I, I thought he was actually dying. It was, I was kind of confused because when he's like, oh, I'm not dying. And then, you know, he tells Ethel towards the beginning and then she's pissed at him. But then he says, yeah, I'm dying. Um, I didn't really know because based off that doctor visit, I was kind of unsure. Right. And then later on in the film, once, once, uh, the bellhop comes in and he's the doctor, I'm like, oh, yeah, okay. Dr. McClure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And he has a, he has a pager, Mr. Yeah. Doogie Hauser. But, uh, yeah, then I was like, oh, this this guy, this little con artist. Right. He does have high blood pressure, which is why he was, the doctor was explaining that, you know, he could be susceptible to like seizures and such. But yeah. Yeah. I know. That was pretty funny. I was like, what? Lying motherfucker. <laughs> yeah. have, have you ever been in a position where someone you had a falling out with came back into your life and asked for forgiveness? And how did you take it? Um, I, I mean, I think I have. I, I can't really think of anything off the top of my head because I'm sure that there, there are more. That sounds bad. <laughs> I'm sure yeah, there's a better. Maybe example, you're but... the asshole. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, so my brother and I, we, we were only three years apart and we grew up together, obviously, because we were brothers. But we had a big falling out um, quite a while ago. Uh, gosh, was I in college? It was a long time ago. Uh, and anyhow, he tried to make amends and then we did he apologized to me and then we had a, a pretty good relationship uh after probably like from like 2010 to 2005 or 2000 wait 2010 to 2015 or 2016 something like that but then we recently had a falling out in, in like the past three years and so it's just it's unfortunate it's one of those situations where it's going to be hard for me to really like give him a third chance um and I won't go into details too much about it, but yeah, that was like, that was, that was tough. It's always, it's always tough, you know, because it's, he's my only brother. So, um, like at the end of the day, I still love him, but it's, it's very hard to, to deal with that kind of stuff when, when you have somebody who's 36 years old, I think. Yeah. 36 years old and they're acting like they're 16, maybe at most. Um, so it's just a lot that goes into it, but yeah, it's, um, I think that's probably the best example I can think of. Sure, that's fine. I had, I had an ex one time, a long time ago, who uh, came back after like uh, a couple of years after we broke up, and she just apologized because we had a, a tumultuous rela- relationship. And I was I was just so confused at the end of it because I'm like, I was doing all those things you said. I don't I don't get it. And then she apologized and was like, I just don't I don't listen. I don't communicate. And I'm like, thank you. I felt I felt slightly vindicated, but I was still sad. But yeah, I mean, other otherwise, <laughs> there you go. Dashboard. <laughs> Thanks, dashboard. Yeah. <laughs> what do you have anything? No. What? I don't. I don't talk about that. No. No regrets. That's all I have to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, Richie Bomber Tannenbaum has a historical meltdown during a championship tennis match. Uh, do you have any recollection of an athlete having a cringeworthy meltdown where the audience was just forced to sit and watch this person's world come crumbling down? all around them. So I had to look some of these up because I, I knew 
But I was like, man, what are some good examples? But yeah, so Terrell Owens, when he was crying after the playoff yeah. loss, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, to the to the Seahawks when uh, uh, Tony Romo fumbled it at the goal line, basically. And then everyone was trying to blame it on Tony Romo's vacation with his then girlfriend, Jessica Simpson, which full circle, 90 degrees. So uh, but anyhow, stay out of it, Nicholas. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> I'll have to find that clip. But um, so anyways, with him being like, oh, that's my quarterback. Uh, everyone gave him so much shit. And I thought it was really passionate. I mean, he really cared about his teammate. So it just that wasn't necessarily like a meltdown. But I mean, everyone was freaking out about that. Right. Sure. Uh, Mike Tyson biting off Evander Holyfield's ear. I was like, I was yeah. only a, a young boy when I knew that. And I know you're a big boxing fan. So you yeah, were probably I, like, what the fuck? Yeah, I, I had ordered the fight on, on paper chew, as it was called at the time. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it didn't, it. it didn't work out. Cause I mean, poor Evander Holyfield, right? Like he had, he had been up and coming and, and he was ready to take on the world and he was nobody until he beat Tyson. No matter what, you're nobody until you beat Tyson. Well, Tyson goes to jail. Then when he finally gets out, they get to have their match, and Evander Holyfield wins. And it's awesome. Then they have the rematch. And and it's just bad from the get-go, man. And it was it was a total meltdown. Right. I mean, there's literally pieces of his ear missing <laughs> from his face. Yeah. And it's awful. And you see like this camera angle where he just literally wraps his lips around his ear and bites and it's so it gross. Cringe, man. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty gnarly, dude. Like, I, I just remember that. And I was really young, so I was like, what? You bit his ear? And then, you know, as time went on, I'm like, holy shit, dude. <laughs> yeah, that was hardcore, man. It was very hardcore. So, and then uh, also Ron Artest, uh, who was Meta World Peace after that. And then he's, I think he's just now Meta Ron Artest or whatever. Sure. But he, he played for the Pacers, I believe. And he was in Detroit uh, and he was... I mean, he like laid on the on on the announcer's table, and then someone threw a beer on him from the fans, and he got tech he got a T a technical, and uh, so he like ran up into this into the crowd, and he started fighting people, and it was just crazy, man. I just remember. I, I, do you remember that at all? Oh yeah, yeah, I remember. Yeah, and and stupid ass Jim Gray starts crying during the broadcast. Yeah. Oh what a yeah, I fuck it. Okay, so yeah. it's not a good idea to hate anybody. But Jim Gray just gets under my skin. I think that guy is just the biggest phony baloney piece of shit on the planet. And I can't stand the man. What a fucking asshole Jim Gray is. God, Good thing this isn't the Jim Gray podcast. God, that that guy literally just bugs the fuck out of me. Remember when when he started (laughs) confronting Pete Rose before the World Series in like uh, 98? It was like the Padres and the Yankees. And he's like, hey, man. Are you ready to admit to the world that you were wrong? And Pete's like, dude, I'm Pistol Pete. Fuck off. It's the World Series. Why are you bringing that up right now? (laughs) I'm Pistol Pete. (laughs) Oh, man. I was so mad. I was like, God, I hate Jim Gray. What an asshole. And then he starts talking about this whole event, and he's on camera, and he's putting his hand in his ear and talking about, oh, yeah, this is bad for basketball. And, And then he just starts crying. I'm like, dude, get out of here. Eat a dick, dude. Yeah, he is the worst. An absolute... Talk about a phony baloney poser. Jim Gray is just bad news bears. Not interested in the man. And I don't want to talk about him for another second. I'm already getting mad just thinking about it. Hate that man. There you go. Well, yeah, I mean, so those are the ones that I can really think of for for blow-ups. It said John McEnroe. I I never really watched tennis, but I know that he would always, you know, blow up and stuff. Um... 
I, I mean, I, I remember like Tiger Woods would would freak out at times when he was he was having his back surgery and his huge slump and everything. And people would take photos in his backswing and he would hit a bad shot and he'd be all mad at the photographers. Like, sure, you shouldn't be taking photos in his backswing, but at the same time, you're a professional golfer and like, obviously there was other stuff going on. So, sure. I mean, that, that just little small stuff like that, that I remember. I remember Ryan Leaf. He was one where, oh yeah, uh, you know, he was Washington State, right? That's in. Y- yeah, and yeah. And, and he, literally... he was like one of the biggest flops of all time. Like yeah. he was the biggest busts of all time. Yeah, it was, it was him and Peyton Manning, right? Rookie season. And Peyton was number one draft pick, draft pick and uh, he goes off to the Colts and then uh, Ryan Leaf goes off to the Chargers, right? And they literally have, in the year 2000, they have 15 losses the entire season. 16 games, 15 losses. <laughs> the man only got four wins, I think, in three seasons as a starter. And what's mm-hmm. what's fascinating about that is he was just terrible. It was a bad, bad bet. And he had this meltdown in a locker room where, you know, he was yelling at some at, at some employee and then a journalist asked him about it and he has a freak out and literally gets all up in his face, and starts yelling and screaming. And then his apology is written on a little piece of paper. <laughs> Excuse me. And after he reads it, he crumples it up and just throws it in the, in the, on the ground. What a it's dick, like, dude. dude, no one likes you. You can, you can literally, <laughs> have, this is your time. You can have a come to Jesus moment and just say, you know what, guys? I've been a real asshole and I'm sorry. And guess what? A Christmas goes for everyone. And and, <laughs> and he doesn't do that. Now the dude's like in prison or something. Who knows what happened to Ryan Leaf? But I I just remember that being terrible. And when I was a kid, uh, John McEnroe had, you know, he had his meltdown um, in tennis where he's yelling at the, at the poor judge. He's like, the ball was out. The laces are in. You know, he's like having his, his fucking... Uh, Finkel and Einhorn moment, and uh, and it wasn't working. They didn't have instant replay then, and uh, it's a shame because it would have saved him a lot of heartache. But just yelling and screaming, and in a gentleman's and a quote unquote gentleman's game, and having just this freak out, telling the, the judge that they're full of shit and that they they suck ass in a bad way. Um, that's unfortunate, right? And uh, I mean, so Ryan Leaf, he was he did have substance abuse issues too. So I mean, that's sure. why he was in and, in and out of prison. He's actually an ambassador for like a, I think a recovery for prison somewhere. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. He's also, <laughs> I, he, he has like a radio show too. I mean, I, I like that he had a bounce back in, in life, but I also at times don't really feel sorry for people like that. Cause I'm like, here's a guy who had everything handed on a silver platter to him pretty much in, in terms of his like sports career. Right. Sure. And he completely chose to go the opposite way. Like if he sucked, who cares? Let's say he's a big bust. He fizzles out, deal with it. Use your fame as the biggest bus to be something different. Don't flip out at reporters. Don't crumple up apologies. And I mean, that's that's like when Mel Gibson apologized for his anti-Semitic marks, remarks, <laughs> yeah. right? When he was like, yeah. he's like, oh, yeah, it's sorry like I'm sorry that. that you're Jewish. <laughs> yeah, it's like, pretty whoa. much. Yeah. <laughs> and so so like to me, I'm like, I don't feel I don't feel bad for him. I mean, substance abuse is a huge thing. So like, yeah, I, I know that that's a, a sickness and, and he can't help that. But it's also there's a lot of other stuff that I think went into that. And so. Yeah, that was a uh, quite the meltdown though. I do re- I do remember seeing clips of that and everything. So. Oh, yeah, it was ugly. U G L Y. 
Now, have you no alibi? <laughs> right? <laughs> have you ever experienced a catastrophic meltdown where just life as you knew it ceased to be, and and you were literally just had like an out of body experience, and you just lost control of everything? Has that ever happened to you? Um, I mean, yeah, I'm a pretty emotional guy, and like I think a lot of people know that. It's something I've I've definitely worked on throughout the years. Uh, it's been really hard, just in terms of like. Luckily, I have a good support system of of good friends and stuff, but. Uh, just like shit that I've had happen through my life. So it, it's, it's been tough and I've had moments where maybe not a full meltdown, but I've, I've like released steam in a certain way by just maybe closing the doors and just screaming for a little bit or something, you know, or like grabbing a stick and hitting it against a tree or whatever. I don't know. Or having a, like a, a footloose style punch dancing scene in a, in a warehouse, you know, to, to dance away all my anger. But, um, I, I, I don't know of anything specifically though um i mean when i so when i lost my dad when i was 18 that was really tough on me and i remember snapshots of the day like up until the moment we had to go to the hospital and everything and i I vividly remember certain moments of that but everything else kind of like was was a blur and i was definitely like lost confused and it was that that was a moment of, of mental breakdown um luckily i didn't do anything stupid but yeah i mean not that i can really think of per se well that's a good thing I didn't uh, write an apology on a piece of paper and crumple it up or anything. I didn't bite no ears off either. So. <laughs> well, you haven't lived, man. That's <laughs> where all the protein is in the ear. Yeah. <laughs> gross. Yikes. That is gross. <laughs> I wonder how hard he had to bite down to do that. Because, I mean, oh, man. just kind of tugging on the ear. It's really not all that put together. <laughs> I, don't, I don't even want to know. <laughs> yeah, me neither. None. That's bad news. Anyway, is there a character that you identify with personally or perhaps connect with based on whatever they were currently struggling with on this motion picture show? Mm, not necessarily. Um, probably maybe maybe a little bit of Chaz, just with him struggling to not be able to find closure with his loss. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've had that happen where I need to let things go and at times it just doesn't work. But um, I do think that it was a, a nice moment in the film. It wasn't nice. I don't want to see a dog die. But I think that dog represented the last part of his of his wife, of the last memory of his wife. And so it was um, symbolic that that dog died. And I was really sad at that moment. But uh, I thought that was interesting because at that moment, that's when, you know, that's how his father got brought back into his life. He bought him spark plug, that Dalmatian, and he Ben Siller was like breaking down and He's like, I, I can't remember what he said, but he's like, I need help or something. And I thought that was really, I thought so, was I've had a rough year, dad. Yeah, there you go. And I thought I that, that was chazzy. And as much, you know, as much guff as Ben Stiller's gotten for, for acting, I don't, I think a lot of people don't realize that he's, he's a really good actor. Uh, he does a lot of comedic roles, but he's, um he's great. He can go really deep. And so I, I liked that moment. It was very touching in the film. I I really like it when he's just a loser, like in Meet the Parents or uh, yeah. Heartbreak Kid. Just I love like, Heartbreak Kid. Every time he just makes a bad choice, it's just so so funny, dude. She's I like, love Pile it. drive me, pile drive me. He's like, I, I don't know what this. <laughs> You're not doing it. Oh my god! It's like this. Please come upstairs. Only we about to play Parcheesi. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's so funny. I really do oh, like that movie a lot. Yeah, yeah no, Ben, ben Siller is great. I think he's fantastic. And then your favorite movie, Walter Mitty. So, <laughs> oh yeah, pass. I love that movie. So yeah, 
What about you? Did you, did you can you relate with anybody from it? Uh, so I think that uh, I would say that Royal is a lot like my dad. You know, things come out of his mouth that a normal person would have a filter and process before they spoke. But <laughs> my dad does not do that. And he will say some very offensive things. And he'll not only not only will it be offensive, but he won't even realize that it's offensive. And if even if he did for a second, he would forget about the entire conversation two minutes later to where it doesn't even do you any good to be upset about it because he's not thinking about it because it's already left his mind. And so it is a real struggle to love my father. And I have to because I have one and it's exhausting. You know, the thing is, like, as a child, he was the greatest father ever. And I loved him to death. And he was the smartest man I ever knew. But as an adult, he has made things very, very complicated. And it's just it's who he is. It's his it's his DNA. And I think my mother did a really good job of protecting us from who he really was as a person. Like we identified him as a great father but we're unable to identify that he was a lousy human. And I, you know, I applaud her efforts for that, you know, so nothing was taken away from our childhood, but uh, he has messed up quite a bit. And even when we were kids, you know, I was thinking about this today while I was trying to figure out questions for this particular episode. And I, I thought of something that I haven't thought of in probably 20 years. And there was this time when me and my dad were, at our house where I grew up in and he was drunk and he got in his Jeep and just started driving through the desert and was just like shooting a gun. And I went outside and when like, like, I don't know, fast forward an hour or so. And I was in the backyard and I came into the house and there was a police officer in our house with his gun drawn pointed at my dad and I had Jesus. no idea what the hell was happening. And then, you know, he turns and looks at me and just sees like a 12 year old kid just scared. Um, but my dad went so off the rails that there was a police officer in our house pointing a gun at him, telling him to get down on the ground. And I'm just like, fuck, man, <laughs> it could have been a really bad day. And, you know, luckily everyone was OK, but it was just really scary. And. I'm just thinking to myself, he doesn't even remember that day. Jeez. So like, it's hard for me. <laughs> it's hard for me to be upset about something now when he has no recollection of this. If I were to tell him right now, dad, you remember that time that you went crazy and got drunk and shot a gun out up and down the street and then came back in the house and a police officer came in and pointed a gun at you, told you to get down the ground. And I was crying. I was 12 years old and I saw the whole thing happen. He'd be like, no, I, don't, I have no idea what you're talking about. Wow. Don't be crazy. Yeah. So, that's just kind of a snapshot of how crazy my dad is. And so, Jeez. you know, throw in that along with just addiction and being a, a bit of a Yahoo. And it's, it's <laughs> exhausting. It really is. And like yeah. my, my oldest sister, she's, she's the lucky one because he always calls her when he's in trouble. And then she, disperses the information to her siblings myself and my other sister (laughs) and then together we decide what we're gonna do and it's always a process and it's it's exhausting and so 
when when he comes and in the movie when he when Royal comes in and said explains that he's dying and and Ben Stiller's just like uh letting it brush off of him. You can tell he's upset, but he's just like, you know what, am I really supposed to care? Mm-hmm. I've I've had that vibe with my dad before, where he was in the hospital and I didn't know if this was the last time I was ever gonna see him. And I remember being more angry than I was sad, which right. is terrible. Well, yeah, and and like the closet scene when him and Chaz go in there and he says that, you know, you're 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 dealing with some stuff or you have to let it go or whatever. Um yeah, man, that's a that's crazy and we all deal with it, our we all deal with situations like that so differently and I think anger and sadness are synonymous. They're both emotions that we elicit from from stressful situations, from situations where we don't know what to necessarily do. So yeah, dang, man. Sorry about that. It's no, I mean it's it's fine. I mean, my dad obviously doesn't feel bad about it, so I don't see why yeah. I should but it's just frustrating. <laughs> no, I oh I, I hear you. Don't worry, I, I hear you. I mean, I wish that we could choose our family, but the the long and short of it is because I I mean I have a messed up family too, and the long and short of it is uh, you can't. <laughs> right. I mean, it's I not know. like uh, it's not like NBA Jam where you get to pick your team, but exactly. Uh, yeah. Or do the He's big on fire head baby? Yeah. Oh yeah. There you go. <laughs> um. Yeah. So it's just one of them. One of them things. And and. And, you know, my sister pointed out the other day, too, is that we don't remember him being this way when we were kids. We have nothing but yeah. fond memories when we were kids, minus minus this whole incident with the police in my house. Um, and, you know, I remember, I've, gosh, I, I I think it was our buddy, Stephen Alva Wood, was talking about watching 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea on Disney Plus when it came, when it launched. And I immediately thought of that was the first time I discovered my dad was an alcoholic when we were watching that on TV. And it was cut to commercial and it was coming back on. So I ran to the garage, right, where I last saw him go to let him know, hey, it's back on TV. And he was drinking out of a paper bag. And, you know, I was maybe eight years old and I was able to identify right then and there. This was wrong. And I was too scared to say anything. So I just went back in the house. He never saw me. And, you know, I never talked to him about that. And it was just really sad. And I was I didn't want to tell my mom because I didn't want her to be upset. And I just, it was literally my first exposure to alcoholism. I'd, I had seen like PSAs on TV and stuff about addiction, but I didn't know how to deal with it. Certainly didn't know who I could talk to about it. And um, it's just, it's just crazy how, how parents can put their kids in the craziest situations without even knowing it. And we all have bad days. We all have our own little meltdowns like we're talking about, but I think the important thing to remember is like who who is watching this? Who is a part of this? Who is seeing you at at your worst and still able to to love you for it? Which is what one of the reviews was saying, right? Is like we get to see all these people at their worst and we still want to be, you know, loved. And that's it's really what it is, man. It's it's hardcore and and you can be angry and still love somebody just like you are with your brother. And it's just like, fuck, why do you have to make things so complicated all I know. the time? What is your deal, man? Why are you the way that you are? And and people won't change, right? We've said that before. Yeah. Unless unless you, you're Rocky fighting a Russian, you, you ain't going to change. <laughs> He's the only man on known record to have changed. So. <laughs> yeah. 
But um, no, I, I agree. And like, so when I go on dates and stuff and, or I'm seeing somebody, it's, I, I'm apprehensive about talking about my family because I know that family to some people is like the rock and, and people just have, you know, oh, my best friend's my mom or my sister. And I'm like, that's great. But I've had people unfortunately judge me because I don't have a good familial relationship. And it's, it's a bummer because it's like, look, you ask eight, nine, 10 year old Zach. And I thought my family was great. I didn't think we had any issues or at least if we did, I would just brush him aside. And I was like, we're awesome. We go to Disneyland every once in a while. And you know, we took a long time to to get here. (laughs) (laughs) It took a long time to get here. We go to skippers and we get clam chowder. Like we're a good family. But then, you know, as you get older, shit happens. And then similar story to like what yours, what you said, like my dad was an alcoholic and I remember him driving me and my sister home drunk several times I mean, we would go to the, our dad's bar with him and we'd always get chicken strips, but he'd get beer. And I mean, he, we, my sister and I would laugh because he would be driving and he'd have to pull over and vomit. And I'm just like, I just thought it was funny. But then later on, I was like, holy shit, he was drunk. That was really bad. So, you know, you want to think your parents are, are pure and you want to think your family can do no wrong. But as you just gain clarity through through age, um, it's it's different. And, and unfortunately... Like I said before, you can't you can't pick your family, so it's it's tough because you're always going to have that unconditional love. But at the at the end of the day, it doesn't mean that you have to be best friends with them, <laughs> right? You know? So no, I get it. Very, it's very Game of Thronesy. Yeah, just with, with without the incest. So right. <laughs> <laughs> and a little less murder. A little less murder. <laughs> murder, you say? So speaking of meltdowns, Richie has another one, and in this shot, he's looking at the camera, which is basically him looking into the mirror, and. Uh, begins to take away his identity. You know, he removes his headband, his wristbands, and cuts away at his beard. Finally, he takes off his sunglasses and turns on the bathroom light, which is really cool because the it's actually really dark lighting, and then he takes off his glasses and then turns on the light, and then you can see very well. It's almost like he had this eye-opening experience, which is really clever, right. I thought. And, you know, what what is Wes Anderson trying to say here? Like, is is Richie seeing more clearly now than he ever has? And... And, you know, that his eyes are finally wide open. Like, why does he try to kill himself? And and why wait until after he regained consciousness to write his suicide note? It's like an afterthought. He's like, oh, shit, I forgot to write my note. You know, and how come we don't get to see the letter? And, uh, you know, that's a lot of questions. So you can take the third part last. <laughs> I'll take the third part last. Uh, Jack Barry. Yeah, Jack, Jack Barry. Um, That's a really good question. I, you know, I, I don't know. I'm kind of stumped on this one because... I think that maybe that was like the Richie of old uh, with his hair and his beard and his glasses and everything. He was still kind of living in that, that tennis world where, you know, it was exemplified by him walking around and people wanting to take pictures with, with uh, what they call him, the bomber. Yeah. The bomber. Yeah. uh, Yeah. Hey bomber, you know? Oh yeah. So, but that was the Richie of old when that might've been one of his darker moments aside from the suicide attempt, but that might've been one of his darker moments when he had that mental breakdown, but he was still holding on to it for some reason. I mean, it caused him to go to leave his, his home and travel the world on a boat. Um, the Cote d'Ivoire. Yeah. But, uh, he, he, he wasn't, you know, he's not the person that he, he wasn't. Yeah. I, mean, I like your, your example of maybe he sees more clearly. Um, I, I think he just hit rock bottom. And it's very, very heartbreaking because the woman he loves, his his adopted sister, Margot, she's been just promiscuous pretty much every year since they were kids. And like even with his best friend, um, Eli, who he trusted, he confided his love with. And he's still like Eli, knowing that still sleeping around with her. And it's kind of like, cool, I lost the girl that I love and I lost my best friend at the same time, which is a bummer. 
And then he metaphorically lost his dad. Um, you said, you know, they had a really good relationship, him and Royal. But after he lied, he's kind of like, I don't know if I can trust you really. Um, so I think he was just at, at a really, really bad point. And that was a hard scene to watch just because it was very interesting. Um, I noticed that he said, he's like, I'm going to kill myself tomorrow. But then he does it right then and there. Mm-hmm. What, that was really odd. Like, I, I was trying to grasp because you said, why did he... Um, why did he just wait after? <laughs> yeah. yeah, wait until he regained consciousness. And so I was thinking maybe it's just because he was just confused and he, he didn't really have a rhyme or reason or know how to do it. Sure. Um, and, and so maybe that's why he he did that. Because like he's saying, I'm going to kill myself tomorrow, but he does it right then and there. I'll write the letter, but I'm going to do it after. <laughs> yeah, he's just yeah. out of his head. Yeah, he's no, out. I mean, of, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And like um, that that's just it, right? Because I feel like it's almost like he's daring himself. Um, you know, you have to be in a in a very very dark place to to go through something like that. And and I my heart goes out to you if you've ever even been close to that point in your life. But um, you know, seeing it, it was really heartbreaking. And then like the shot of his wrist and then the blood pouring down, it was it was a lot to take in. Poor Dudley yeah. walks in and he's just like has a silent scream. It's so horrible. He doesn't even know what to do with himself. Yeah. And, um, you know, Raleigh, to his credit, saves his life. And no one even talks about that. How sad is that? Here you have this girl, just this doctor who just knew what to do, calls 911. He's holding on. He's, he's, he's saving this patient's life. And and no one even says thank you. The fuck? Because he's, you know why? Because he's not a Tannenbaum. Yeah. Well, and I think it's it's really important. And I think a, a thing that that scene showed was that he was loved. And anybody who's struggled with that um, that existential crisis of like, what am I doing here? Or you're having that mental breakdown. Uh, just remember that you are loved. And, and I, I, I heed my own advice basically, because I think about that stuff too. And I'm like, Oh no, I have really good friends who love me. And I just think about that kind of stuff. But I mean, as soon as that happens, you know, it shows all of our main characters just rushing to get to the hospital. It's not them being like, Oh yeah, whatever. I'll show up later or whatever everyone's in a rush and they, they genuinely care about Richie. So I thought that that was, that was pretty endearing, but right. yeah, and even, even having Raleigh there, you're right. Which was a very nuanced role for, for um, Bill Murray, which is so interesting because in many of his other films, he's like the lead or he has a larger than life personality. And in this one, it's just a very sad man. And I felt really bad for him too. Right. I know. Did you see Rushmore by chance? Yeah. Have I love Rushmore. Rushmore? Okay, mm-hmm. Yeah, he's he's great in that too. Oh, he's fantastic in that. Yeah, fine young man, up ten all the way. All right, so uh, we're at the end <laughs> of the movie here, and uh, Royal finally has his his epiphany, his aha moment, and realizes uh, what's important to him, and that's his family. And you know, he lets he lets go of Ethelene, as you mentioned earlier, and uh, he gives her the divorce so she can have a life with Henry Sherman, P. Sherman, forty two, all the way. And um, he supports Richie and his love for Margo. That was kind of weird, but he's like, hey, whatever. She's adopted. We've made a point of addressing that every time it comes up. And, um, you know, who in turn is inspired to write another play, this time based on the lives of them growing up as Tannenbaums. And there's even a nod about uh, her being the adopted daughter, which connects well with Royal. You know, he laughs at it. And Ch- uh, Chaz finally buries the hatchet with his father and lets go of being a widower. And he can finally move on with his life. And enjoy what precious little time that we have left on this planet. And it's all good things. Are you satisfied with this ending? Did it did it tug at your heartstrings? Did did you get all that you needed from Wes Anderson and the Royal Tannenbaums? 
Oh yeah, absolutely. I thought it was a, I thought it was a fun, happy ending. Uh, not a, I shouldn't say fun, but I think, I think it was a, a happy ending. Um, and as happy as a Wes Anderson film can be. Um, and we need to appreciate, I mean, basically he was just saying we need to appreciate life and, and those little things and, and realize that love is love, man. So, um, yeah, I, uh, I enjoyed it though. I think, I don't really think I've seen an ending of a Wes Anderson film though, that I didn't like per se. They haven't been, they haven't been horrible or anything. Right. They're all kind of their own little weird adventures. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're fun. Uh, any final thoughts on the film? Where do you rank it amongst other Wes Anderson motion picture shows? So I, I did really enjoy it a lot. And um, so I think it is in my top five. Um, and I, it's weird that I had, I waited so long to see it because I've seen a lot of his older film or not his older, I'm sorry, his, his later films and, it's interesting that it took me forever to do it. So it's, it's cool that like you were suggesting it and Steve was suggesting it because, um, that was just one of those movies that I was like, Oh yeah, why haven't I seen that yet? So, um, I think my top five for Anderson in no particular order are like Moonrise Kingdom, the Grand Budapest Hotel, Rushmore, Royal Tenenbaums, and then the Life Aquatic of Steve Zissou. Steve Zissou. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. Where does it ring for you? Oh, it's my favorite. It's really? one of my all time favorite movies. Yeah. It, oh, that's so fascinating. I think it'd be a fun uh, Halloween costume to do. Dress up as a Richie or just pretty much anybody would be pretty fun. Sure. I could be Margo. <laughs> <You know, laughs> when you were reading the synopsis and it talks about how Eli Cash goes to um, like his rehab in like North Dakota. North Dakota. He's got like this weird like cowboy obsession. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, he's like twirling the lasso and then he hops <laughs> I know. It's so ridiculous. He writes he, the book um, about Custer. Custer, yeah. yeah. He yeah. he presupposes that he didn't. <laughs> he didn't die. Yeah. <laughs> didn't Everyone die. knows that Custer died a little bit more. What this what presupposes is maybe he, he didn't. didn't. <laughs> <laughs> what a jack. Yeah. No, I, I read a I read a fun little note that said when he was reading that excerpt, uh, it was based off of Cormac McCarthy's writing. And Cormac McCarthy is very American tale style. Um, right. He doesn't do like Westerns and stuff, but very, I don't know, dry writing. And so that's kind of how it was, but it's, it is funny. And I think he had these illusions of grandeur. Eli did where like when he's telling Margo, he's like, and then all the good reviews came in. She's like, I read the reviews that they, they weren't that good. And so um, he just, he, uh, he definitely had a problem. And that was very, in, that, I was glad that he, he realized at the end, he's like, I need help. And I'm like, yeah, yeah you do, dude. You do. And how someone would go out of their way to say that he's not a genius. <laughs> like, yeah. He's yeah. like, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> Who says that? <laughs> I know. He was, uh, he was interesting. I think, I feel like Owen had a lot, a lot of uh, fun writing that part. So. Yeah. Oh, he's great. All right. Well, yeah, I so I give the movie an A plus. This is one of my favorite films. It inspired me to pursue a career in filmmaking. I love everything about this motion picture show. And and even today, just watching it, I, I saw something that I'd never even noticed before. And I think that that just says a lot about it. It inspired you to eat chicken sandwiches again. No way. Because, Jose. because of the color palette. <laughs> Not in a million years. Yeah, I, I, I really want to get that book, um, that Wes Anderson book, because it's it's just fascinating to look at. And fascinating. Um, yeah, he's aesthetically just <laughs> so pleasing with what he does. Um, I'm pleased. Yeah, I know. I was very pleased. I feel like my eyes just took a nice nap after watching this 
<laughs> well, and it, it, it recommended because I watched it on Amazon Prime, which it's on in the U.S., not in Canada. But uh, I watched it on Prime and it, it recommended Steve Zizu after that. And I was like, oh, oh nice. you know what? Not a bad idea because his soundtracks are fantastic. And um, my friend Bree, she actually pointed out to me because I've only I really like Steve Zizu, but I didn't realize that the artist was the same throughout the film. And he, he just does like David Bowie covers in Portuguese. And I think it's so badass. Um, but uh, yeah, this movie had a lot of good, a lot of good music. It kept playing that Christmas time song for some reason. Did you notice that? I don't think so. No, it's like, I mean, Christmas I noticed time is here. Right. Yeah. I noticed. <laughs> oh, that's right. That's right. I noticed uh, like Judy is a punk uh, Ramones. Couple yeah. of Rolling Stone songs on there. She saw she smiled sweetly and Ruby Tuesday, which are back to back, Tuesday. by the way. Yeah. Um hey Jude and then Stephanie says, Yeah, hey Jude Beatles, um, Velvet Underground. So um there's some some good music. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. It really fit with the times. Yeah. Thinking about it now, I, I could see how his fans could be pretentious, where like the example of oh well Bottle Rocket's his best movie. I'm like you talking about oh yeah he's a dick dude there's no way yeah yeah like tell me why i mean those are those people that are like 2001 space odyssey is the most influential film of our time and i'm like right how fucking so like <laughs> i really like mad max fury road actually a lot better and <laughs> like it, it blows me away but i don't know well i mean yeah so like that's how i i am like when i say that i love the royal tannenbaums the very next sentence could also be and starship troopers and jaws <laughs> yeah. and karate kid you know so like I have this eclectic taste in in motion picture shows. If if you are a pretentious film reviewer and you know you just are stuck in a decade, then that is just your own problem for having such a narrow lens. Absolutely, I know, man. We should start a podcast or something like that since Dude. we know so much about movies. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, they're not always apocalypse now. The horror. The they're horror. not always going to be amazing, but they're going to be. <laughs> It'd be fun movies like Waterworld, amazing oh film. Oh my god, but... that movie sucks. <laughs> Ninety-five something. He has seen Dry Land though. How can you argue yeah. with that? I don't know about so, all that. Yeah, but uh, anyways, man, is that is that all we got? Is that, is that the show? Stealing Adjustinism? Is that the show? That's the show. <laughs> Take us out. All right, buddy. Well, thank you for listening to the Don't Be Crazy podcast. Sorry, I was a little sleepy there at the beginning. I wrapped my head around things a little bit better, and uh, it was fun. But uh, please remember to follow us on Twitter at uh, dbcrazypod, at edgyarmo, and at zachdale60, and Zach is with an E, uh, and a Z, where you can share your thoughts with us, and we'll discuss them on our show. Uh, you can tell us what movie you think we should watch, too. We are done with our spooky movies, so we will like uh, we'll watch whatever's, but as long as it's streaming and readily available, so the millions and millions of The Rocks fans can watch it with us. But uh, yeah, man. Um, also, please be sure to check out the Geek Legacy podcast with David, Randy, and Justin, as well as the Pixelated podcast uh, with Stephen K. James and his goddamn shoes that he wears. But it's all about those video games for Mr. Shoe Wearing Stephen. So, um, all that we ask though is please remember to do not be crazy. Thank you for listening. Thank you so much.